Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet the grade 12 Toronto student who fought and succeeded in changing the English curriculum at the country's biggest school board to include a grade 11 class that focuses on Indigenous literature. Passenger trains vanished from Vancouver Island more than a decade ago. The tracks are still there, but time is running out to bring rail back. Will it happen? Madonna's appearance at the Grammys on Sunday is still being talked about, especially the way she looked, a face seemingly transformed by plastic surgery. Best-selling author Rachel Simmons shares her thoughts. But first, do you use online reviews? Can you trust them? One expert says we should probably ignore them altogether. We ask why. Well, you kind of have to love stories like this one. I suppose it did real no real harm in the long run. So recently, if you'd gone to Montreal and gone to TripAdvisor to try to figure out what the highest rated restaurant in the city was, you would have wound up at a place that doesn't exist. It was a restaurant called Le Nouveau de Lutte. It, it's not, it, there is no such place. There is no such place. In fact, uh, someone who owns a business next door to the supposed address said they would have tourists coming in, asking them, where is this place? He says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the ease with which it rose to the top of a travel advice site is really what the story is here along with it. It was all set up this way. It was a bit of a joke, apparently. It started off as a joke. It's happened in other places too. I think they did the same thing in London and the UK as well. To cre- but the whole idea was to show you could create buzz with no substance behind it. And that also points out the real, the real challenges that other restaurants have when it comes to getting noticed on things like TripAdvisor. And it provides another example of the pretty murky world of online reviews and such and the sites we rely on for them. Joining me now with more on that is Kay Dean. She's a former federal fraud investigator and founder of Fake Review Watch. The name says it all. Kay Dean, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. I always, you know, these stories, I guess people figure out how to game the system, but did that come as a surprise that a restaurant that doesn't exist could climb up to the top of TripAdvisor's uh, eating establishment list? No, no. And that's a, it's a good example to show how easily these sites can be gamed. How does it work? How would you do that? Oh, gosh, there's so many different ways. Uh, you get, right. get on social media and... Um, obtain fake reviews uh within a matter of minutes really and, and so the, yes, and, and, and the algorithm can't can't tell right well it's funny there's various ways that they can fool the algorithm um but uh, initially no um you can pile on you know dozens of scores of fake reviews in a short amount of time i guess the challenge here for the rest of us is trying to separate the good from the bad in all this right yes and it's that's the problem most consumers uh don't have the either the time or the ability to really discern what's real or fake. And quite often reviews can have a lot of detail and even, and even have photos. And so um, it's really not easy for the average person uh, to tell if a review is real or fake. And they're putting a lot of blind trust that these tech companies and their algorithms are self-policing and looking out for the consumers. And I'm here to tell you that they're not. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, especially <laughs> if, you were, if, if you were in Montreal going to that restaurant, you would have found that out pretty fast. I, yes. I mean, that was, that, was a, that was a joke, right? But I would imagine that, that this is also used in, in, in less funny ways as well to try to promote companies over each other. I mean, there must be a real battle where this is concerned. Uh, oh, when yes, it comes it's to actually very to, yeah. serious. 
it's serious business. Yes, for sure. Uh, businesses live and die by these reviews. So, um, so yeah, this is a very serious matter that is affecting millions of people on a daily basis. How do you spot the good from the bad? Then, or what kind of advice would you give someone trying to figure that out? Well, you know, actually, having looked at this issue for over five years now, my advice to consumers is really to to try to dismiss reviews altogether as a reliable source of information. Too many of them are fake. And go back to the tried and true method of uh, word of mouth. Uh, Get out and talk to your neighbors and colleagues because uh, the tech companies are not on top of this fraud. And I think it's good to remember uh, the consumer that remember how these companies, the review platforms, make their money. It's from the businesses who pay them advertising dollars. Um, uh, It's not in their interest to call attention to widespread fraud on their platforms. They want you on their platforms they want you using them daily, uh, and they also are collecting a lot of data from you when you're using their platforms. Um, so they're not, they're not self-policing as they should. So you would ignore because you must know, I mean, even in my inner circle, I mean, everybody, we don't go anywhere without looking at Yelp or TripAdvisor. I mean, it's just the way things are these days. But you would say just put that down and find another way. Yes, and I think that's, that's the problem. Surveys show that so many people are relying on reviews for their information. And my research shows that these tech companies are not self-policing like they should. And so millions of consumers are being duped. And it also it creates unfair competition among businesses that are trying to compete in this environment. Uh, where I liken it to the Wild West, um, the current system rewards cheating. And business ethics are really eroding, and it harms consumers and honest businesses. Um, resist the, uh, the temptation. I know everybody has that tendency to get that instant information that's right at your fingertips. But I'm here to tell you that these platforms, Yelp, Google, and the rest, are just saturated with fake reviews. And I think it's, the problem is much worse than most people really realize. I want to say, too, you, I'm yeah. one person. Oh, go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead. You're one person, yeah. Yeah, I'm one person, and I use no automation in my research. And the amount of fraud that I uncover single-handedly, just on a daily basis, it would shock. I think anybody could see, go to my YouTube channel, Fake Review Watch, and you won't trust online reviews again after watching my videos. <laughs> <laughs> you just want Buyer, to, beware. Just, Buyer, beware. Buyer, yeah, beware. Needless to say. Yeah. Yes. How much, is it, how much has it changed? <laughs> how much has it changed in those five years? I think the problem's getting worse because there's a lack of regulation and enforcement. And I think we can project that the problem can just get worse because governments and law enforcement aren't really stepping up uh, to protect consumers and honest businesses. And so, Ben, I think just given the importance of reviews to consumers, that surveys show that consumers are using them heavily and the prevalence of review fraud, uh, and the tech company's failure to really seriously address the problem, I think there perhaps is maybe a role for government to step in and start looking at this issue, because it really is, I think, having a distortionary impact on the marketplace. And yet it all started off in such a, you know, such a spirit of, uh, spirit of discovery, didn't it? You go to a restaurant you like, you write a little review about yeah. it, you hope someone else finds so out, appealing. you like the owners. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I you know, this was actually a, a wonderful innovation by the tech companies. It was, and it was so appealing. However, what they did was they created a Frankenstein's monster, and it's up to them to fix it. And if they don't, I think government and enforcement needs to step in and start uh, looking at this much closer. 
Do you have any um, surefire ways to how do you spot a how do you spot a fraudulent review? That's a good question. And like I said, it's not easy to do. You have to look at you can't just look at a review in isolation necessarily and tell that it's fake. You have to look like at a, a number of reviewers, review profiles, and see what else they reviewed, and look at, for, for example, suspicious patterns in the review pa- uh, behavior. Um, and so it's really, I think most consumers don't have the time or the resources to sit down and, for example, create an Excel spreadsheet of multiple reviewers of Google or Yelp and see, hmm, this doesn't make sense that uh, 15 reviewers happen to use the same contractor and the same dentist in the same city, you know, those kinds of uh, those kinds of um, data points that you would just immediately think, no, that's not possible. Uh, and you're thinking, oh, Google and Yelp, of course, are their algorithms and their teams of engineers are doing this for you. And my research shows over and over again that they are not. They're doing a terrible job at looking out for consumers. And again, they make their money from the businesses who pay them, not from consumers. <laughs> and so it's yeah. really not in their business interest to call out businesses for faking. That reminds me of back in the day when they used to put, you know, when new movies would come out in the newspaper, there'd be all these glowing reviews. You'd have to look at who the review was from, right? So it was right, never right, anyone right. you ever re- you recognized, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Back, yes. right? mm-hmm. Well, KD, thank you. Thank you so much for enlightening us on this. That's uh, very good advice. Well, yes. Thank you for, for inviting me. Thanks for being here with us on this Wednesday night. We've been talking about a whole bunch of things. We spoke about Madonna earlier and uh, all the brouhaha over her appearance at the Grammys, looking so different, looking so different from how she did uh, when she was younger and all the sort of backlash against it. There are many different theories out there. Some say that she's the victim of ageism, obviously, and others are saying that she's done this. She's always been subversive, right? She's always sort of chosen her own path. And this was just another way of standing out. And she chose to do this. And, um, you know, she sort of said that she wouldn't be, she's never apologized for the way she's looked. And She's not going to start now. So that's what she had to say. Um, uh, Johnny in Winnipeg pointed out that if you want tickets to her 40th anniversary tour, you're going to pay a whole lot of money for them. So clearly she has the money to, to afford this. And uh, she's on tour across Canada. The tickets to see her concert started at 600 bucks. Yeah, Johnny, you're right. I mean, I think you could get them a little bit cheaper, but they sure are expensive now. So yes, she's not... Um, Madonna's not like not like your your next door neighbor, is she? In that sense, um, Ben Michael Jackson is an example of a male entertainer altering their look uh, as well. Yes, indeed. I mean, we spoke about that a whole lot. The reasons behind that. Enjoy your show. As I'm a radio fan, having a crystal radio as a child, I've never used a crystal radio. My grandmother had one and talked about it all the time. How great they were. Um, I'd love to be able to. I know they. St- I know you can still. Collectors have them. It'd be great to see one. Yeah, Michael Jackson too, right? Uh, was was often talked about about what it transformed, why he did it. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting subject because you know we we put a lot of obviously we we see look at celebrities a lot and sort of place a lot of our regular thoughts and feelings on them. And yet, as we well know, they are so very different at times, right? The way they perceive things, the what fame does to you in many ways, how it isolates you. And, um, I wonder what that impact that has. <laughs> anyway, a conversation for another day. Thanks for your text. As always, one 399 is our text line. So if you want to share your thoughts on anything you hear on the show, please let me know. And I'm happy to share those with our listeners. Uh, this is an interesting story. Canada's largest school board 
the Toronto District School Board, is going to make a course on Indigenous texts compulsory in grade 11 English as a grade 11 English class um, after the school board voted to do that. It's to provide a greater understanding of Indigenous culture and history. Trustees with the school board voted last week to replace its current mandatory grade 11 course with one titled Understanding Contemporary First Nations, Métis and Inuit Voices. At the beginning of every term, um, so it, this is something that's going to start soon. The course already exists. It's being taught in quite a few schools, just not all of them. Uh, but one student who took that course last year, he's now in grade 12, he's an Indigenous student, really felt strongly that this was something that should be taught right across the entire school board, right through it, and mandatory in grade 11. This doesn't mean that you know Shakespeare and Dickens goes away forever. There are other grades where that will be learned. But in grade 11... Uh, that is the course that will be mandatory. And Isaiah Shafkat was the student behind it. He's also on the school board's Indigenous, he is the school board's Indigenous student trustee, and he is chair of Indigenous relations at the Ontario Student Trustees Association, which involves uh, which involves leading Indigenous education initiatives for about 100 student trustees across more than 70 school boards. But again, this is a really big one because the Toronto District School Board is a massive school board, the biggest in the country. So this change is coming. Isaiah Shafkat was one of the driving forces behind it. And uh, we invited him on to talk about how it happened and why he felt so passionately about it. Isaiah, thank you. Happy to be here. So your your group is meeting. They must be, I mean, people must be excited about this. It, it feels like a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of people are excited about this new change to the, the grade 11 course. Um, a lot of students are ready and prepared to learn from Indigenous authors in the classroom. You took the course last year. I think that was part of what really um, sold you on it, right? Maybe that's the wrong term, but what did you like about it? Um, I, I liked the course as a whole being reflected in the, the uh, things that we learned, uh, like the books. It was really uh, a great experience because education doesn't always center the voices of Indigenous peoples. And uh, that was a really big driving force for me to make this the compulsory course. Uh, and as well as just acknowledging the world we live in, Indigenous peoples have stories to tell and bringing that to the forefront and uh, putting that in a mainstream course is really important to me. Yeah, I mean, TDSB is not the first board to do it. Others have done it before. And I guess this class was already available as it was for you in other schools. What do you think the uh, the benefit of making it compulsory, sort of making this the grade 11 class, what do you think the benefit of that is? The benefit is students get to learn from Indigenous peoples, I think, first and foremost. There are a number of great Indigenous authors out there that have great stories. And learning in this uh, course happens differently. The, the, the classroom environment's different, um, and overall, the learning is enriched. Not to say that in the more traditional English class that students aren't learning, but it's, it's a different method of learning rather than sort of the classics. It's Indigenous authors with contemporary stories. Yeah. Uh, how, how is it different? I mean, j- just your own experience in that class. I imagine there are, you know, being in Toronto, you're in a class full of kids from all over the place, right? So what were some of the stuff that came, what was some of the stuff that came out that you found interesting um, just about the whole subject matter? Uh, well, the the way the course is taught, the pedagogy is very different. The The classroom, it's sort of based on reciprocity and the understanding that everyone in the class has a story and we can all learn from each other. I think that was one of the, the big differences for me from the year before studying what we consider the classics and just having teachers talk to us and 
Um, it's just being sort of a one-way street. Teachers are to teach and students are to learn. But in this course, it's teachers teach, but they can also learn. And students are learning, but also teaching at the same time. The other students in the class who may not have had the familiarity with the literature that you would have going into the class, what was it like to talk to them and hear their stories about how they were reacting to this to this lit that you probably might have known better than they did? Uh, it was great. A lot of the students in my class were open to learning and were eager to learn. And I think that's a coming at it with an open mind. And students are, I find, very open-minded when learning new subjects. Uh, the students were exciting, excited, rather, and I think just overall really enjoyed the class and the environment. Yeah, do you have any examples of sort of books that react? Because I'm just thinking back to, I mean, this goes back a long time, but you know, when I was in grade 11 English, you know, we did we studied all the same stuff that everyone else studies, Shakespeare and so on. It wasn't that it was dull. I mean, I saw the benefit of learning sort of the roots of what we consider to be Western lit, right? I mean, there's a structure there and storytelling and so on. But what did you find um, was emerging from that classroom in terms of just the conversations you were having as grade 11 students? The conversations really focused around the lived experiences of Indigenous peoples in contemporary time. For example, like the Mi'kmaq lobster fishery dispute that happened out uh, east, Um, the Kanasatake resistance uh, back in the 90s, the uh, Grassy Narrows, for example. It was a lot of current or, you know, semi-current subjects that we talked about, which I think sparked a, a interest in the students for social justice, uh, as well as truth and reconciliation, which needs to be an integral part of every Canadian's life. And in this case, I would imagine if you're young these days and if you've you've been, you know, spent the last years growing up around these stories that have emerged, whether it be the unmarked graves or any number of things that you've been talking about, that the curiosity is there, right? That people want to know. Definitely. Students, I think, are more eager to learn than ever. Students love learning. Um, and I find students especially love to learn when they're reflected in the classroom or the, the current world they live in is reflected. And I think that's something this course does. It reflects Indigenous students in the classroom. So as myself, an Indigenous student, I felt welcomed and I felt uh, reflected in what we learned. And then for non-Indigenous students, it's the world we live in. It's the world where Indigenous people are resisting ongoing forms of colonization, where Indigenous peoples are reclaiming identity and resurging our voices and our stories. How's the reaction been? I mean, I know you were excited about it. I've seen there's been a lot of coverage of it. How's the reaction been so far? It's been overwhelmingly positive. Students are excited. Staff are excited. I've received a number of emails, phone calls, texts, and comments and t- on Twitter and social media just uh, of people being excited and welcoming this new change. But of course, there are people who are weary or are uncomfortable with this change. And I understand change can be scary and uncomfortable. But I think a lot of this, um, the fear, if you will, is rooted in the idea that we're no longer teaching Shakespeare or Dickens and, and others. But that's simply not true. They will be taught or can be taught. We're just dedicating one of the four to Indigenous authors. Yeah, and and I gather teachers are going to need some some training here too, right? To be able to teach this properly, or at least uh, engage in the kind of pedagogy that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, definitely. So our Urban Indigenous Education Center at the TDSB supports us in all of our Indigenous uh, education matters, and so they host a number of professional learning opportunities for staff throughout the year to engage in Indigenous education uh, and learn how to better support Indigenous students, amongst other things. And so they will be leading this implementation with 
our superintendent of Indigenous education, doing the work for this to present the report in June of 2023. Now, teachers who teach this course will be equipped in the coming years to teach it well in a way that is trauma-informed, culturally responsive, and respectful, which is important because we do not want to re-traumatize students or inflict harm in any way within the classroom. Yeah, I imagine, though, that, I mean, given this the subject matter, there's going to be some frank conversations. That, I mean, even the books that you've talked about uh, are books that deal with some very sensitive and very uh, emotion-inducing subjects. Most definitely. And the Indigenous lived re- experience or reality is not one that is easy to learn about or live. There are a lot of rather heartbreaking stories from Indigenous peoples, but that's one of the unique things about this course is that students are given the space to absorb it and take a moment if they need to. When teaching sensitive subjects, it's always important that we we center ourselves and make sure we're okay to learn this. And that's something that is different in Indigenous pedagogy. We want to make sure your well-being is, is okay, you're doing okay. And so students, uh, specifically in my class, were always encouraged to, if they need a moment, to take a break, just to make sure this isn't too emotionally strenuous on them. Yeah, because I, I can I can imagine, especially for students who might know a whole lot about the subject matter, it can be it can be very it can be heavy stuff to to use a non scientific term. Most definitely, it's it's definitely tough to learn about, and I think especially tough for Indigenous peoples because this is our lived experience, and a lot of this fits close to home for us. Residential schools, for example, a lot of us are intergenerational survivors, or uh, perhaps our parents went to a day school, or um, when talking about the 60s scoop. This isn't ancient history or something that happened 100 years ago. The last residential school closed in 1996. That wasn't that long ago. And so there are people who have gone to residential school recently. And Indigenous peoples, we always remember to take the time to learn and reflect. And I think that's one of the important things about this course is when engaging with Indigenous pedagogy, the well-being is one of the most important parts. And I guess 17, 16, 17 is, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it, there, is no, there is no perfect time to learn about the history of your own land, right? <laughs> 17 seems like a good enough one. Definitely. You know, being 17 when I was taking the course, uh, I learned a lot. I, I learned so much that I didn't know because it just wasn't part of the curriculum. My my own experience, the first time I had any Indigenous education within the classroom was in grade 10. And unfortunately, that was me leading the class discussion and the lesson. And I think this course combats this. We're not requiring students to, specifically, we're not requiring Indigenous students to teach Indigenous histories because that, that's not the role of a student. That's not their job. Um, so I think we're combating this in, in a way. Yeah, I, I guess the course would really, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. You, you would be called on to talk about things because no one else was in a position to talk about them. And that would be insufficient, would, 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 be, would be, I guess, the word that comes to mind. Not right. No, definitely. There, there's this concept or this uh, lived experience of many Indigenous students of being the token Indian in the classroom, having to be the spokesperson for all Indigenous peoples across Canada and Turtle Island as a whole. But that, that isn't possible. We, the diversity of Indigenous nations across the country is so broad and diverse. It's impossible for one student to share the, the knowledge or perspective of every single nation in Canada. Do you find when you do your own reading as well? I know you're about to graduate, that you're looking at, uh, at law, right? Is that, is that, uh, is that the plan? 
yes, that's my plan. What else do you, what else do you read? Is there any books that, that you would recommend that listeners dig into because you felt they really made a difference? I mean, I still remember books I read back in my first years of university or my late years of high school because they stay with you forever. You know, the books you read when you're young, they really do. Even if you read a million other books afterwards, those ones when you're young, they really open your eyes to stuff. So you remember them. Definitely. Uh, my top three would be Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga. Mm-hmm. That one was such a powerful book for me, getting sort of the inside look of the, the lived experience of Northern Indigenous communities, being from Newfoundland and living in Toronto my whole life. I, I don't, there's a disconnect. So I didn't have that knowledge until I read the book. Another great book is uh, Indigenous Rights, A Guide to First Nations and Métis Inuit Issues in Canada by Chelsea Vowell. It takes a very straightforward approach of educating people on the the history and the issues that Indigenous people face. And I learned a lot in that book. Uh, I learned about Métis challenges and the struggles the Métis community has had, uh, the Inuit community, um, and so many things that it's hard to dedicate a class to it or learn it in class because it's so broad, the, the issues. And so that was a really great book as well. And I think the most recently, uh, the book I read, Empire of Wild by Sherry Dimeline. It's a, it's a nonfiction, or rather it's a fiction book, but it, it talks about real world issues in the book. It, t- it talks about the weaponization of relationships, of religion, and of folklore or culture. Uh, and th- these are all things Indigenous people have to deal with. And so those are my top three books that I, I know I will remember forever. Well, Isaiah, uh, congratulations on seeing this through. Uh, good luck. Good luck with your what lies ahead. And thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Uh, happy to join. to say you know my grandfather worked for canadian pacific when i was a kid and i've always loved trains they live near a train station in montreal montreal west is a train station it's a commuter train station and when i moved out to victoria one of the first things i noticed is that the tracks were here there's still tracks in victoria you can see them almost leading right up to the johnson street bridge which basically is right in the the heart of the city and uh, those tracks are you know you can see them right across the island more or less, but the trains are gone. They've been gone for more than a decade now. And the little train stations are still there in different communities up and down the island. Um, but again, it's been about uh, 12 years now since everything disappeared. And because the tracks are still there, there's always been talk of bringing it back. There's always been talk that maybe the trains will come back, especially as the island has grown in population. Communities like Nanaimo and Victoria are growing. The suburbs of Victoria are growing. Uh, there could be use for commuter rail. This track runs right by one of the fastest growing communities in, uh, in the province, Langford it's called. And so there's always been this idea that maybe, just maybe, with the right investment, with the right timing, that the sounds that you just heard could be heard again on Vancouver Island. It has to be one of the only places in the country nowadays, other than maybe Newfoundland, where you just don't have trains anymore. And it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad because the infrastructure is still in some ways there. It needs repair, but it's still there. There is a deadline coming up. Uh, By mid-March, the federal government has to decide or has to state at least its plan for the tracks on Vancouver Island. Um, 
now there is a group that manages this. It's called the Island Corridor Foundation. They manage the rail system on the prop on the island right now, um, and they've estimated that it would be about four hundred thirty-one million dollars to revive rail, uh, including that commuter service around Victoria I was talking about. Other estimates are a bit higher. Uh, but this is a big deadline. It feels like if this passes and nothing's done, or if the federal government decides there is no future, that that might be that. And Larry Stevenson is the CEO of the Island Corridor Foundation, and he joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight, Larry. Well, thanks for having me on, Ben. I imagine any tourist that comes to Victoria and takes a walk across the bridge and spots the tracks must wonder what happened to the trains? Where did they go? Because it feels like the kind of place where trains would work. The distances aren't too big. There's lots of people living sort of relatively close together by Canadian standards. What happened to the trains on Vancouver Island? Well, when you go through the history of this, I mean, I I think one of the things you said earlier in your introduction, I mean, it's the timing, right? And you're right. This conversation has been going on for a very long time on this island. And, you know, I, I never thought about a tourist walking down and seeing the tracks and scratching their head. But you're right. You know, it's it's probably exactly what they do. Um, so, you know, the Island Corridor Foundation came into this when CP wanted to leave the island. And, you know, fortunately for us, some, some folks got together, uh, led by First Nations, actually, to acquire the tracks and to acquire the system from CP Rail, and they went forward and put a proposal together. And in 2005, CP donated the entire system to the ICS. And you know, the train operated uh, up until 2011, and then of course, you know, because of, of service issues, and you know, we were starting to become concerned about the you know the deterioration on the line. We stopped passenger service. Now we still do have freight service on the island, Ben. That's right. <laughs> We, we, right. we have it in the, in the Nanaimo area. It's the only place That's on the right. island that we operate. But, you know, certainly we're focused now on trying to get the entire 289 kilometers, you know, revitalized and put back into back into play. Because the island has changed a lot since uh, since 2011 even. And uh, specifically, I mean, what once would have mm-hmm. seemed like a check against the uh, rail system might now have changed because we have a lot more people here and, you know, there is there is a demand. We have growing suburbs in many places. So it might mm-hmm. be a time to, to bring it back. Well, and it is. You know, you're right. There's There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of people come to the island. And, you know, when you look to the future, it, it's not going to stop. You know, it's it's only going to get worse. And, you know, we're starting to see the, you know, the downside to that now. And, you know, as an example, the, the government did a study on the South Island, and you may you may have seen it. Um, you know, they're forecasting that by 2038, we could see transit times from Mill Bay into Victoria of up to two and a half hours. Yeah, you know, which is like Toronto, Toronto, Toronto kind of traffic, right? Yeah, but you're only going 15 miles. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult. And, of course, living on the island, you know, we're constrained, you know, we're constrained to one highway, one highway system. And, you know, we saw the downside to that with the weather event, you know, when it wiped out the Malahats for, you know, close to a week. And so, you know, we have yeah. issues here, I think, that, that bode well for the timing that you mentioned. Tell me a bit about um, this decision that's coming up, because uh, it feels like there's, we've been talking about a deadline, but what exactly, I, I understand it involves just a short piece of the track, but um, it could have big it could have big implications for the future of all rail. Yeah, it's, you know, so what's, what's happened there is, you know, one of the, the First Nations on the island um, had progressed a lawsuit through the courts. And, you know, essentially what they said is, look, this land was taken from us uh, and it was taken for railway purposes. So when we went through the courts, you know, it, it, their, their claim was denied in the first go around. So we went through a, another go around at the appeals court and, 
what the appeals court did is they came out and they said, hey, look, you know, we understand you're holding this for, for railway purposes in the event that we're going to have a railway sometime, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean you should be able to hold it forever in perpetuity. So the judge, you know, she made the decision that, look, I'm going to give you a deadline. I'm going to give you 18 months. And in that 18 months, we need to have two things happen. The federal government has to stand up and say whether or not this corridor is actually in the public interest. And if it is, if you're going to fund the the needed infrastructure repairs that are going to have to happen to make it viable. So that's how the 18 month period got started. And, you know, as we're, we're going through that now, we're literally 34 days away from the end of that 18 month period. Yeah. I mean, for those who don't live on Vancouver Island, I guess one of the most interesting things about it, having lived in many cities across the country, is that, um, you know, one of the issues you always see with rail service, and my mom's in Ottawa now, is that once it's gone, it's hard to justify rebuilding it. And I think that's part of the problem. The infrastructure exists here. So why not use it? Because Mm -hmm. once you tear it up, chances of seeing it rebuilt are pretty slim. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you have a contiguous corridor today, and, you know, given the, the court, the court's ruling, if we don't put rail on it, it's going to go away. I mean, it's going to get broken up, which is going to make it no longer suitable for you know, using it for rail. And you're right. I mean, we've seen this across Canada. We've seen it, you know, in a lot of places around the world. I mean, if you look at England and the beaching cuts back in the 60s, they tore up rail everywhere. And now they're busy putting it back in. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of in the same position here. We have, a, we have this amazing piece of infrastructure out there. And yes, it's, you know, it's in a state of disrepair and it needs to be cleaned up and we can do that. And, you know, we should be doing it because frankly, I don't want to have a conversation with my grandchildren 20 years from now that says, yeah, we had an opportunity, but, you know, we set it aside and we've lost it. Yeah. I mean, tell me a bit about the finances of it, because I, I was looking at different estimations about what, you know, there's obviously because it's an island and it, uh, you know, there's it, 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 the route that it takes, it, it needs to be there, are a lot of trestles or bridges and so forth. Um, it would need some repair. And it, a lot of it's in sort of poor to fair condition at this point. Yeah. You know, so the, the condition of the line, actually, you know, when you look at it from a railroad perspective, you know, people will walk on it and they'll say, oh, these ties are horrible. The thing is, is going to fall into the creek. It's not. Uh, the right-of-way is actually in, in fairly decent condition. That doesn't mean it doesn't need work. It absolutely does. Um, when you look at the finances of this, um, you know, we put forward a, a business case that said, look, for $431 million, you can have an operable rail system. And, you know, that gives you uh, freight, pass- freight service, particularly in the north part of the island. It's going to give you inter-regional train service. It's going to give you the ability to do a small commuter system in, in Victoria that's tailored for Victoria. Um, and you're going to be able to use it for tourist excursion type trains as well. Uh, you know, the business case when we built it, I mean, one of the things that happened here when, when I arrived four and a half years ago, I had a conversation with the then premier who said to me that, look, there's numbers all over the map here. and I'm not spending $300 million to fix a bridge. And you yeah. know, my response to that was, well, there isn't a $300 million bridge. But the numbers had been thrown around so often. And, and, you know, if you live on the islands, you know that it's a constant conversation. And, you know, thank goodness John Horgan took the step to say, look, let's go and get an assessment done on this piece of track. Let's all start talking from the same position. Let's all have the same set of numbers. And that's what we did. You know, he he commissioned a study. We went out or sorry, the, the province went out and had it done. It was an independent assessment. You know, they came back and they provided three levels of service at three varying costs. So what we've done in our business case is we've taken those numbers and we've made a bit of a hybrid because we said, look, you need that, but you don't need this. 
you need this, but you don't need that. And when you put that all together, we come up with about $431 million. Um, what are we expecting out of that decision? If it goes, I, I suppose, if, if there is support for it, what could happen next? Well, I, you know, I think if you look at the level of support on the island, I mean, it's, there's a lot of support for this railway. You know, I, people want to see this, this railway back in operation, and that reaches everywhere from regional districts to um, just people themselves, the, the general population. Um, BC Chambers of Commerce, UBCM, they've all gotten behind getting this thing going. And I think when we hear the decision, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, we're not ready to put a shovel in the ground. Um, the governments have been taking the time, I guess, to do the due diligence part of this, which, you know, you expect and you, you want them to do that. Uh, I, I expect what we're going to hear is that, that they do believe it's in the public interest and that they're going to they're going to support it. Um, and I think we're going to get into a, a round of trying to put together the plan to actually restore the rail service. And there'll be a timeline set to make sure that, that happens. I guess there's going to be a lot of coming. There's so much demand now for money for healthcare. There's all kinds of things out there that need investment. Um, it's always a tough sell, isn't it? I mean, this, you are talking hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Yeah, and, you know, we don't make light of that. I mean, we understand every single dollar that, that we're talking about is an important dollar because it's coming out of somebody's pocket. The government, you know, as you know, the government isn't, isn't giving you anybody's money but, but somebody else's money. Um, so we understand that's important. But at the same time, you know, I think we have to turn the view to one of the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You know, we're only going to get one shot at this. And, you know, we can't lose that shot in my mind. So, you know, the government's awfully good at managing multiple priorities at the same time. You know, fortunately, we have a, you know, we have a nice budget surplus. Maybe that's going to help us. We don't know. But um, this is important, you know. And when you look at it in terms of the cost of this relative to other similar type infrastructure projects, it's actually quite, it's, it's relatively inexpensive compared to some of those, like some that you see on the mainland as an example. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to tunnels and bridges and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it it is, uh, and it's already there, right? Do you think when you look at a, at a, at a perfect scenario in your mind, you know, is that, is that look like in, you know, five, 10 years time, you could take a ferry across from Horseshoe Bay to, uh, to departure Bay, then take a cab over to the train and go up and down the Island, um, on the train. I mean, people talked about, what people who've been, who were here long before I was uh, still talk about being able to take the train up to Parksville or take it up island from Victoria and what a great what a great experience it was when it, before it began to fall into disrepair. Yeah, no, and you know, I think the surprising thing here for most people is that when they decide they're going to move and when we start putting those plans into place, it's not going to take that long. You know, one of the, the stumbling blocks we've had a bit with, with the province in our discussions is the view that this isn't a design and rebuild. You know, we're not looking for engineers to come in and redesign the entire system. This is really, in the in the in the words of a, a railroad person, this is maintenance. It's really all it is. You know, we need to freshen up the ballast. We need to put in some new ties. We need to change some rail. You know, and by our calculations, you can probably do that at a rate of probably a mile a day or better if you're really pushing it. Um, so once we start, it's not going to take very long, and we're going to have that system up and running. Well, Larry Stevenson, I guess we'll find out uh, in, would you say 34 days? Is it 34 days? I guess we'll find out what uh, what the future may hold for for rail on Vancouver Island. Again, one of the few places in the country where there is just not much of it. I mean, you see it, uh, you don't see a lot in other parts. It's not everywhere in other provinces, but it'd be nice to see it back on Vancouver Island if it makes sense uh, financially. Well, I, you know, I think it does. And, you know, the interesting thing about this, you, you talk about the history of rail in Canada. I mean, this, this little rail line was responsible for bringing BC into the, into the country. 
you know, it's, it's 1871. It was part of the terms of the union for British Columbia. And here we are 150 years later, you know, trying to figure out how we can make it operable again, you know, and put it back into play. And I think you're going to see more of that across Canada. And the government has been, the federal government in particular, has been investing in, in railroads all across Canada. So why not this one? Why not now? I mean, it's, it's time. Perhaps the, it was the wrong time 20, 30 years ago, and maybe times have changed. Uh, Larry, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Ben. And thanks for having us on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to talk Madonna this half hour. Why not? She's really, there's been a lot of ink spilled. There always is, right? I mean, that's the thing about Madonna. She's been a master at this for a very long time now, you know, 40 years plus about getting a lot of ink spilled. This time, of course, about her appearance at the Grammy Grammy Awards on Sunday night. Really, her appearance is what was being talked about, the way she looked. Uh, she'd clearly undergone some plastic surgery and she's, her face has changed and she doesn't look the same. And a lot of people had a lot of really negative comments about that. Madonna at the Grammys, here's what she had to say. I'm here to give thanks to all the rebels out there forging a new path and taking the heat for all of it. Yeah, she took a lot of heat uh, for the way she looked. New York Post's page six, what happened to Madonna's face? was a pretty typical reaction to it all. She then fought back. Yesterday, she said, I've never apologized for any of the creative choices I have made, nor the way I look and dress, and that's not going to start now. Once again, I'm caught in the glare of ageism and misogyny, she says, that permeates the world we live in. Um, so what do you make of it? What do you make of it? We thought we would find out who better. Rachel Simmons is an educator, executive coach, best-selling author of Odd Girl Out, and she joins me now. Rachel, thanks. Well, thanks for giving me a few minutes to talk about it. So often the the inspiration to write something comes from an itch, <laughs> something you've noticed before, you notice it again, and all of a sudden you think, I need to say something about this. What was it about the reaction to Madonna at the Grammys that really put you in a situation where you felt like you had to write something down? Well, you really nailed it because it was an itch. It was actually my brother texted me a link to a New York Post article that led with this outrage over over her face. And I just remember feeling that itch exactly like, no, 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 no. Like I have something to say. And as a writer, I'm not one of those writers who has to write all the time, but when I have something to say, I can't do anything else except sit down and write it. And so my poor daughter was like, we're going to school, right? And I'm like, nope, mom's got to finish this thing. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was just feeling probably a combination of fealty to Madonna. I'm a Generation X girl who grew up with Madonna, treasured her, not just her music, but the ways that she always broke barriers. And I think like exemplified for me as a young queer kid, a way of being that I couldn't actually like live out, but that I hoped I could touch someday when I could like break out of my conservative home life. So Madonna certainly represents all of that to me. But also as an educator, as a mom, I really cringe at the way that we go after individual women for their choices without really paying attention to the culture that shapes those choices. And uh, this is something I've thought about for a long time. Yeah. Tell, tell me a bit about the culture, because you really did, you did emphasize, you know, that we all look at this. I mean, I think it was natural because of the, you know, I think when I, I'm from the same generation, I grew up with a young and very... um uh, not, I mean, very confident Madonna, at least that's what it felt like on the outside, right? So to see her change, I think can be a bit jarring to people, but you really touched on an idea of why are we going after her? Uh, there's a much bigger story here about this. What did you think that was? Or do, what do you think it is? 
Well, I think it's very convenient to harsh on individuals because it actually allows us to assume that they're behaving from their own choice or will, rather than thinking about a more systemic form of oppression towards women. I don't know what Madonna has or hasn't done to her face, but I do know she looks awfully different than she did when I was growing up. And it does look like something else other than aging. And so my big question is why? Why do entertainers, why do people whose job it is to make music feel the need to alter their appearance? It's not just about vanity or narcissism, which many people on my Facebook post, uh, which went viral, were saying it's something bigger. And I think we are being blind to the forces that keep women spending money and time and frankly, their self-worth on these efforts to modify their appearance. What struck me about it too, I mean, I remember when Mickey Rourke suddenly looked very different and it was talked about it, but he wasn't ridiculed. It wasn't like this, like this, there was something biting about the reaction to this. And I, and I want, and that I thought spoke to something bigger, you know, it was the, and it came from both sides. I mean, it came from men and women, right. But this idea of kind of, there was almost a level of, of disgust, right. And you wouldn't see that if the tables were turned. I think that's right. The reality is if Madonna looked like a naturally aging woman, she would be made fun of for looking old or, or we would say, you know, she's, past her prime, or she should go to retire, or whatever it is. There is something about the entitlement that we feel as a culture to judge, to weigh in on, to ridicule female aging. We just don't do the same to men. We really don't seem to care. And frankly, at the Grammys, there were many very well-preserved male faces on display, and no one seemed to react. So there is a kind of entitlement that we feel to judge. My point, not just as somebody who thinks deeply about about women and gender and girls, but as a mom, like we have to get our kids aware of this, because if we don't, we're just going to raise a generation of girls who think that they're not enough as they are and think that they're not pretty enough or young looking enough. And a generation of boys that kind of is blind to these forces and doesn't act as allies to girls. So this isn't really just a women's issue. This is an everybody issue. It also felt, I mean, Bonnie Raitt was there, right? Bonnie Raitt looks great. Um, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure that she uh, decided, she knew she was going to be at the Grammys. It feels like Madonna's always paid a bit of a price for this, right? That over the, over time that she's always been the target, even back in the eighties when she was so, um, out, I mean, out there, so willing to do what she felt like she needed to do or wanted to do, uh, that she's always earned a certain, uh, disdain for being the way she is. And this is just another example of it. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, if we compare her to someone like Bonnie Raitt, I mean, Madonna has transgressed some of the expectations of women in a way that I I wouldn't say Bonnie Raitt necessarily has. Madonna has always taken up space in a way that the culture tends to find really offensive. I mean, I think the culture has a lot of confusion. And by, by culture, I sort of just mean like, what are our mainstream feelings about how women should be? Um, I think we're still not sure how comfortable we are with how much space women and girls take up. And we can say, of course, oh, girls and women are doing great. Sure, to some extent, that's true. And they've probably never done better. Yet discrimination abounds and women are still kept from the highest levels of leadership. So we're still not sure how comfortable we are with women using their voices, being different. And I think Madonna, again, exemplifies somebody who hasn't really cared 
uh, has been maybe somewhat indifferent to those expectations. And so I, there's no question in my mind that she's going to generate much more ire and backlash because she has pushed those boundaries. And you re- related it as well to, to ageism writ large, right? The idea that uh, you, you put it out to some surveys of late where age discrimination, which is with an aging population at that, has become even more prevalent and perhaps in many ways less talked about, or I mean, perhaps it was never talked about, but we certainly don't feel like we're talking about it a whole lot now. Well, you know what we talk about? We talk a lot about how we need to buy fancy creams and put needles in our faces and, you know, drink more water. That's what we talk about. We talk about what is we as individuals can we do to look younger? So I don't think it's that we're not talking about ageism or age, I should say, or aging. It's that we're not talking about, we're not, we're not weighing in on whether or not it's fair in the first place to expect women to reverse a process that is inevitable and to disproportionately expect women to do it and to punish them when they don't. So we are talking, we're just not talking about about the why of it all. And here's my worry is that the longer women spend beating themselves up for not looking a particular way, the more we're not actually just looking at and frankly challenging the culture that's making us feel this way in the first place. So every time we sit there and rag on Madonna or um, look at our wrinkles and go online and try to figure out. And I'm speaking about myself here now, like what's the right serum for my, you know, under my eyes to make them age a little bit less quickly. We are not spending time thinking about the unfairness of it all um, and the disproportionate impact that this has uh, on us as women. Uh, Rich, I was looking back at that stuff you've done over the past. I mean, you went, you went into this topic long before a lot of people thought, did to be to be honest and and before a time of instagram and so on when something like this happens at the grammys it feels like a long time ago it would have been sort of a one day or two day story and it would have gone away because the mainstream media would have moved on to something else now it feels like these things survive online and that a whole generation of kids who mightn't have been exposed to it 20 years ago are going to see it now and what message do they get from it is that right well i think it's a mixed bag because on the one hand we have social media creating so many more opportunities for these pictures to be shared, for these headlines and memes and jokes to be propagated. And so, yeah, are there kids kind of sitting there in the classroom of popular culture, uh, swallowing up all these messages and lessons? Yes. And there are a lot of people making social media out there, myself included, that are challenging some of those messages and stories. And I think kids are seeing those too. You know, in my comments online, I was very clear to point them to parents and to say, listen, we have to teach our kids about these expectations, boys and girls. We are not going to teach our kids to change society if we don't teach them to be critical of its messages. That's where I think we have a lot of hope and where social media actually becomes a real agent of change. Before social media, we would have only seen one side of the story, which is the sort of outrage about the appearance. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Absolutely. And the reaction to your post, I think, lays truth to that. There was a lot of people weighing in on what they thought, what they thought Madonna's role was, the whole notion of aging and plastic surgery. It feels like maybe it's a conversation that we just need to talk about it more. We need to clear the air in some ways. Well, I think bottom line, we are not raising our children to think about gender bias in a deep way. And because of that, because we're not giving them a lens to think about, hey, how might this be unfairly impacting girls or boys or non-binary people? What happens when we don't teach kids to be aware of the culture is that they grow up into adults who blame themselves when they experience discrimination. So in other words, 
if you don't grow up understanding the pressure that women face around aging, and then you are discriminated against as an adult woman, you might think, what's wrong with me that this happened to me? Or maybe I should have looked better or invested more in facials or thought about this differently instead of saying, wait a second, I'm being targeted. So the lack of consciousness that our kids have, that adults have, leads directly to kind of to self-blame and to not advocating for themselves and not changing things. And so there's so much work to be done through consciousness and we all have a role to play. I think in cultivating that, whether we're managers in a workplace, parents, teachers, mentors, anybody who's spending time with kids or in a position of teaching can do this work. And it feels like it's a cycle to be broken. Cause I even just look at my own personal experience and you know, my, we used to, my mom used to make fun of my grandma for dyeing her hair, for instance, and just said, I'll just let it go. You know, who cares? And then when she got older, the same thing happened, right? And then our, my generation's getting older. I see the same thing happening again. And you wonder what it takes to sort of try to write that if it needs to be righted, if that's the right word. Well, one of the reasons why your mom probably said, oh, just let it go is because maybe she didn't have that consciousness. She didn't know to care until she was the one with the gray hair. And that happens all the time. Um, I see this happening where young women graduate from university and they think everything is the same for me as it is for men. I have equal rights. Everything's going to be great for me. Maybe they were even lucky enough to go to an all girls or all women's school where they were really told they could do or be anything. Then you get to a certain point in your leadership path, typically around, let's say, the director level. And all of a sudden, you're not advancing at the same rate as men. You didn't come into the workplace at 20, 25 saying, hey, I'm going to be conscious of sexism. You only became conscious of it when it started to hit you. We can change that by having that consciousness be with our kids and be with workplaces from the very beginning, not only when it becomes an issue for us. And I think that's the difference that consciousness building from a young age makes. So if we were to walk away from this uh, Grammy moment, what would you like what would you like people to think about? I'd like people to think about why Beyonce didn't win record of the year. That's the one thing I agreed, agreed about, which yeah. is criminal. But beyond that, <laughs> I'd like people to, to think about the messages that they are raising their children with and just helping your kids notice. Like, I, I think this is really key uh, if we can bring it back to parenting. So when you observe something that makes you uncomfortable as an adult, ask your child to notice it. Do you notice, you might say, that, you know, everyone on the screen that we're watching right now has a certain kind of body, maybe a smaller body. And is that really, does that really represent all of us? Or do you notice that the girls on this show are acting a particular way, being very quiet or being very obedient? And is that really how all girls are? We help our kids notice. We ask them what they think about what they see. And hopefully we develop their muscle for being critical consumers of our culture, not just passive ones. Well, Rachel Simmons, I'm glad you decided to scratch that itch and write this all down because it's been a really interesting way of looking at what could have been quickly forgotten as just another one of those Grammy episodes. Well, thanks for giving me a few minutes to talk about it. Appreciate it.